Good morning. I'd like to begin today's sermon with a confession. A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity to spend some time with a dear friend of mine. We were out running errands, and we had to swing by the Quincy Courthouse to drop off some paperwork. Upon arriving at the courthouse, we, we headed into the building. We arrived at the metal detector. My friend, who happened to be a person of color, went in first. The alarm beeped. The police officer walked over to him and rather abruptly asked him to place his hands in the air. The officer then spent the next three to four minutes patting him down, checking his pockets, lifting up his shirt, checking the lining above his pants. Three times he went over him from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with the handheld metal detector. I stood by watching. Then it was my turn to go through the metal detector. I started to get nervous that I would beep too. You can ask Aisha, I always get beeped at the airport. True story. So upon going through the metal detector, I did, in fact, beep. I looked at the officer, expecting the same three to four minute treatment, and he simply waved me off. I had an opportunity to respond. I had an opportunity to speak up against this blatant display of racial profiling and racism. But instead, I, like the religious leaders in Jesus' parable, looked the other way. I didn't want to cause a scene. After all, it wasn't really my problem, I thought. I looked the other way. Throughout our time in the courthouse, I noticed several other white people walked through the metal detector who were waved on within 10 seconds of standing in front of the handheld metal detector. My heart became heavy. My friend had just encountered racism and his friend, a pastor, looked the other way. It's not my problem, I justify. In today's text that Jen just read where a similar story is going on. An expert in Jewish law asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, what do you think? And he responds, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, he knew the answer. He knew all of the right things he was supposed to say. Either he had heard Jesus teach this before, or he knew the Torah very well and happened to have a similar interpretation of the Torah. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But then the man, wanting to justify himself, turns to Jesus and says, So who is my neighbor? Jesus tells him the parable that we've all heard many times. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Then, a priest happened to be going down the same road. You would think good news to the man in the ditch, right? But when he came to the man, he turned his head and passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place he saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring 
on oil and wine. And he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to the inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, two days' worth of pay, two days' worth of wages, and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. In this story, the religious leaders pass right by the person in need. Like myself a few weeks ago, the priest and the Levi ignore the injustice that is directly in front of them. We do that today, don't we? We look out for our, for our own needs much more than the needs around us. We ignore them. Our lives testify to the fact that we think we are the most important people on earth. It's not our problem. We justify. We are not responsible for it. We justify. I mean, we're not responsible for Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Tamir Rice, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, and thousands of others. Right? We're not responsible for five police officers killed and seven other wounded in Dallas. Right? Eric Steverson, in his book, Scandalous Obligation, talks about this concept of responsibility. He says, we tend to ascribe, ascribe responsibility where fault is found. But the fact of the matter is we are all responsible. We have participated in a system that advantages some while disadvantaging others. We've contributed to institutional prejudice and racism. At best, we take responsibility for that which we have caused. Unfortunately, there's a ton of suffering in the world for which no one claims responsibility. This can be because of negligence or the fact that there are no identifiable parties. In many cases, the guiltiest parties are often ignorant of the damage they've caused. Very often, the guiltiest parties are so far away from the suffering, they don't even know it exists. And still, in some cases, the guiltiest parties have passed away many years ago. This is how modern sexism and racism operates. Our current society is still trying to navigate through years of past sins. And to make matters worse, our culture and history often blind us to the ways that we reenact the injustice of our ancestors. Our responsibility for suffering does not end with the damage we ourselves have caused, because we participate in a world that does not indict us for the sins we benefit from, from those we ignore, and so from those we cannot yet see. For there is a host of suffering in the world that no one claims responsibility To follow Christ is to be responsible. To follow Christ is to stand between the mob and the scapegoat, to stand up for the distraught, the suffering, the least of these. The follower of Christ must be responsible. German theologian Martin Niemöller has a, has a quote that has been, it's in several places and it's been heard of it many times, and I recently encountered it at the Holocaust Memorial in Boston. It's a well-known quote, and it goes like this. First, they came for the socialists. I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. The follower of Christ must be responsible. 
After all, God took it upon God's very own self to be responsible for us as Jesus the Christ. Christ gave away everything that he had and who he was in order to become human for us. Jesus died for us, but Jesus also died for those that we walk by, those that we silently ignore while uttering, not my problem. Jesus died not only for us, but for millions of others, every nation, every tribe, every race. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. God became a human being as Jesus, as the ultimate act of love. God became a human being to experience our experiences. God gave up God's own divine privileges for the sake of God's creation. To follow Jesus means that we must do that as well. The Christian is responsible to others, even those who are different than us. Maybe even especially those who are different than us. Those like that of the Samaritans. The Samaritans were despised by the Judeans because they were known as half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And when the northern kingdoms were taken captive by the Assyrians, the Samaritans intermarried with them. And they formed a place called Samaria, just north of Judea. And as is often happens in situations like this in the Old Testament. They they adopt the worship of their false pagan gods and they fall into the idolatry. And when the Jews returned to Jerusalem and tried to rebuild the temple, it was believed that the Samaritans would pour pig's blood in the temple, making it unclean and ruining their building project. Whether they did it or not remains to be seen, but it was believed by the good Judeans that that's what they did because they were so bad, that they were such evil people. This was detestable to the Judeans, and it was considered a pollution of the holy place. So therefore, some scholars suggest that the Samaritans were actually hated by the Jews even more than their Roman conquerors. Many Early Judeans would not even walk in Samaria, but would go far out of their way, even if it was a longer trip, to avoid entering Samaria, because they believed the Samaritans were unclean, uneducated, dirty people. They believed the Samaritans were the enemies of the Jews. And this is precisely why Jesus mentioned the Samaritans in this parable his listeners would have assumed that a Samaritan would have been the least likely to help a Jew because of the way that the two groups interacted. The Samaritan in the parable seemed to understand that he had to be responsible to others, as must we. This is one of the primary messages of this parable. We are to be responsible. And we've heard this parable many times through the years. And we usually assume, we usually find ourselves in that of the, of the person of the Samaritan, right? This is who we need to be. People who go find people in the ditch and, and help them out. And yet, maybe there's another message from this parable 
that you and I need to hear today as well. The great thing about parables is they're filled with several different layers and quite a bit of different meaning. Sandia Rani Jha wrote a book that I came across this week entitled Pre-Post-Racial America. And she's a Christian author and activist, and she suggests that through the parable, Jesus might have actually been saying this. Recognize the humanity, the deep capacity for kindness, the potential for greatness of this people that you have been taught to believe are inferior. Accept their gifts. Do not malign them. Do not let other, others perpetuate the lie that they are inferior. Perhaps Jesus' message delivered to a person with relative privilege within the Jewish community was for people with privilege to locate themselves in the man at the side of the road. And to recognize that when you are down and out, your own people aren't always the ones who have your back. For the Samaritan had compassion on the person lying in the ditch. The phrase, he had compassion, occurs only three times in the Gospel of Luke. And in the two other instances, this concept of having compassion comes from God. Listen to the first time that Luke uses this word in Luke chapter 7. He says, soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a large crowd went with him. As he approached the gate of the town, a man who had died was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. And with her was a large crowd from the town. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her. And he said, Do not weep. Then he came forward and touched her, and touched the coffin, and, and the bearers stood still. And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, rise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Jesus had compassion on this widow who lost her son. The, only, the second time this phrase had compassion is used here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then the third time that this concept of having compassion is used is in the story of the prodigal son. So he set off and went to his father. And while he was still far off, the father saw him and was filled with compassion. He had compassion on him. And he ran out and put his arms around him and kissed him. Showing compassion for Luke, at least in these other two instances, is very specifically a divine right and a divine action. The Samaritan, when he shows compassion on the man in the ditch, is really functioning as God's agent. And if the Samaritan is God's agent, it's almost as if Jesus is telling the story, depicting God as the Samaritan. Since the only other times that this phrase is used represents God's action, bringing someone back to life, welcoming the lost son, maybe by using this phrase, Jesus is referring to God as the compassionate Samaritan. We are the ones in the ditch, and God is the Samaritan, bandaging our wounds, taking care of us, saving our very lives. But God often comes in the people and places that we vilify, ignore, and oppress. Just one chapter before today's text, 
The disciples asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to burn up the Samaritans. Listen to this text. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And on the way they entered the village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. So when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said to the Lord, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. They went to another village. Maybe a couple days, a couple weeks before, James and John are asking if they should call down fire from heaven to burn up the Samaritans, and now Jesus is calling God a compassionate Samaritan? Jesus is saying that God is identified with those that we vilify. God is identified with the enemy. God is identified with those that we wish we could burn up at times. Jesus tells the story. God is the Samaritan, the one who heals us, brings us out of the ditch. But that God comes in the people and places that we vilify, ignore, and oppress. Jesus has told the story. And then he turns to the lawyer and says, which of the three, which of the three was a neighbor to the man who fell into robbers? The priest, the Levi, or the Samaritan who does the things that God does? Having compassion. And I can imagine the lawyer stepped back for a moment and may not have wanted to answer. And his response is the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He despised them that much. He was that prejudiced. He couldn't even say that the Samaritan was the good guy in the story. He responded, the one who showed him mercy couldn't even say the word. You know, this week I was talking to Montague about this passage, and one thing that he brought up to me that I had never really considered was that Jesus never actually called the Samaritan good. Calling the Samaritan good seems to buy into the racialized assumption that all Samaritans are bad. So why add the adjective that the Samaritan is good unless we expect him to be bad? It wasn't that this bad Samaritan stepped into a positive Judeo-Christian ethic of being good, but maybe what Jesus was trying to say through this parable is you need to learn from those who are different than you. I will actually show up and teach you that the people you look down on and despise, the people you wish would burn up, they actually embody the presence of God. For the compassion that comes from the Samaritan comes from God. Dr. Amy Jill Levine wrote an article in Biblical Archaeology Review, and she suggests that the Samaritans were not just outcasts, that they were the despised enemies of the Jews, and that the listeners would have expected a Jew to be the hero of Jesus' story, and instead they would have been shocked to hear that it was a Samaritan, that God was a Samaritan. And as Levi explains it, only by understanding this reality does the powerful message of the parable come through. And she says these words. The parable offers a vision of life rather than death. 
It insists that enemies can prove to be neighbors, and that compassion has no boundaries, and that judging people on the basis of their religion or ethnicity might just leave us dying in a ditch. This is really a scandalous story. Is Jesus really serious that we might find God in people and places that we vilify and ignore? Maybe Jesus is actually setting a bad example for us. Why did he do all this healing? Why did he fight all this injustice? I mean, the guy had eternity locked up in a bag. Why would he have the audacity to go above and beyond? Was life that boring that he couldn't just find arguments on social media to troll? Shouldn't have he just engaged in some bumper sticker moral theology like all good Christians are supposed to do? Why did he have to tell us that God's actions and presence are found in the Samaritan. Couldn't we just call this parable the parable of the good person? Wouldn't it be easier for us to deal with that? It certainly would have been easier for the ancient Judeans to deal with that. It would be much more comfortable, the good person, Similar to a phrase that I've seen thrown around on social media a lot recently that says, all lives matter. Um, there's a blogger out of New Hampshire named Doug Mutter, and he talks about the interplay between the Samaritan and black lives matter. We do believe that all lives matter. We, we have to affirm that as, as Christians. Um, and, and he suggests that you know all lives matter implies that black lives matter, so we should be happy, right? But my question is, why did Jesus make it all so specific? The third man could have been anyone. And the point could have been that anyone can be your neighbor. And if he'd put it that way, the lawyer probably would have had no trouble saying it. Who was the one, you know, who was the neighbor to the person in the ditch? The generic person that you told me, the third one in the story. And it would have been happy. After all, that's a nice, broad principle and even if it doesn't specifically say that a Samaritan can be a Judean's neighbor, the implication would still be there for those who would like to draw that implication. So why doesn't Jesus tell it that way? Would it be better, like, could we improve the parable by scratching off the word Samaritan and writing in the word person to remind us that God's presence can be found in anyone, that all lives matter? Like, would that be better? The point I believe of making the third man a Samaritan rather than a generic human being is because saying a Samaritan is my neighbor would bother a Judean. It'd be difficult for them to say, while anyone can be my neighbor, probably wouldn't. Anyone can be my neighbor is an abstract, feel-good idea that a Judean could hold in his head without challenging any of his specific prejudices. The same thing is going on with Black Lives Matter. It's not meant to say that black lives are more important than other lives. It's not meant to say that police lives don't matter any more than Jesus was trying to say that Samaritans are better than Judeans. Jesus is not saying that. The point of saying black lives matter is that it sticks in the throat of a lot of white Americans, just like the good Samaritan sticks in the throat of a lot of Judeans. At the same time, all lives matter is a nice, feel-good concept. We can say it and agree with it without challenging any of our specific prejudices. Yet affirming black lives matter might be a little uncomfortable. 
And Jesus named the third person a Samaritan for a reason. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus were to come to our congregation, what he would specifically tell us. I can easily imagine him wanting to tell us that we ought to take the lives of other people more seriously. Maybe he'd tell us a parable, a story, to get the idea across. But would his main character, the one whose life we should take more seriously, would it be a generic human being? I doubt it. I think he might tell a story about someone who's different than us. Someone who we might consider a threat. Someone that we wish fire from heaven would fall down upon and burn up. And then Jesus would remind us that their life matters too. That we actually need them for our salvation. That when we're lying in a ditch, broken and afraid, God might come to us through the person that we consider a threat. I look around our world this past week. I believe that God's heart is breaking. God's heart is breaking over all the evil, injustice, prejudice, hate, and violence in the world. And I believe that our hearts ought to be broken. God desires so much more for God's creation. And you and I are invited to, to have a part of it. May we follow the message and the life of Jesus. May we affirm that Samaritans aren't bad, but that the presence of God comes through the people and the places that we do not expect it to come. It starts with broken hearts. Break my heart for what breaks yours, O God. As I look around and see the violence, the desperation, the people being murdered because of their skin color. I need to cry out. I need to ask God to come, make life anew. Every week in our communion liturgy we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And while that's a prayer asking God to do something, I do believe that prayer is very closely tied action. What integrity do we have if you and I every week pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, and continue to be okay with the violence and the suffering, the people's lives being taken because of their skin color. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. God's heart is breaking over the violence in the world. And I believe that our hearts ought to break.